You're listening to Sore Sessions with Dr. Trish and Jeff Todd. Hello, everybody. Hello, Dr. Trish. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to another episode of Sore Sessions. Another. We have a we have a good uh, good one today. We have a special guest, the Dr. George Paletta is with us today. Yes, an interesting man, an accomplished surgeon who has plenty of stories. He's um, he is. Let's see. Should we say? Would we say internationally known? Is that can we say that, Doctor? Well, I think you could. I've spoken in internationally, and uh, I've taken care of international athletes, so it wouldn't be an unfair uh, description, I guess. So internationally known, he specializes in sports medicine, but he's a. We can say he's an orthopedic surgeon to the stars. We can say that, but more importantly, you want to know his number one accolade. What's the number one accolade? He is the favorite orthopedic surgeon of my wife and my mother-in-law. That's probably the most important accolade. Yep. (laughs) Comes with a giant trophy. It wasn't an easy one to win either. (laughs) (laughs) Operated on my wife. Operated on my sister-in-law. I tried to get him to operate on my daughter, but he's too good of a surgeon and he talked me out of it. And guess what? He was right. She never needed a surgery. Back playing everything. Even when I thought she needed a surgery, he talked me out of it. I heard he's the best arthroscopic surgeon in the region. Maybe. I I think that sounds good. I like that. Which, you know, the next question for me is, what about the other surgeries you do? You're not the best there either. I'm teasing. I leave that for others (laughs) to decide. (laughs) So Dr. Paletta is orthopedic uh, sports medicine, uh, orthopedic surgeon with specialty in sports medicine, but he's also um, a pediatric specialist. You did training in pediatrics as well. Uh, yes, I did. One of my fellowships, one of my three fellowships following residency was in pediatric and adolescent sports medicine. And I have a particular interest in the young uh, athlete, particularly the young throwing athlete, baseball and softball players, and also in young athletes who unfortunately injure their anterior cruciate ligament or ACL. So that's a particular area of expertise and interest for me where I've spent a lot of time and energy trying to uh, really be able to to bring to those athletes a level of care and a level of expertise that uh, is somewhat uh, unique to the area. So the one thing I didn't, I didn't know that you'd had that pediatric training at first. I mean, I knew you were a sports medicine surgeon. So then the other thing is you trained at HSS, correct? Yes. Hospital for Special Surgery in New York? That is correct. I did my orthopedic residency at Hospital for Special Surgery, and I did one of my fellowships at Hospital for Special Surgery, and I spent the first almost three years of my practice career at the Hospital for Special Surgery. So HSS is a big deal. It is. It's outstanding as far as reputation. It is generally recognized as the top uh, orthopedic training program in the country and probably the top orthopedic specialty institution in the country. So here's the question. I was talking to Dr. Herford before you got here, and I said, how come, you, how come patients don't realize that? Like those of us in the business understand that HSS is a big deal or, you know, your Stedman Hawkins or Curlin Jobs, but how come patients don't, you know, maybe when they're shopping for physicians, see that kind of stuff and go, oh, well, this is, this is a big deal? Well, I think part of the reason is that HSS is a specialty hospital. It's focused purely on musculoskeletal, meaning orthopedic and rheumatologic conditions, whereas the Cleveland Clinic, um, you know, Mayo, uh, Mass General, those are, are institutions that take care of the entire breadth of medical problems. So on a national level, unless you're really in tune to orthopedics, you're talking about an institution that uh, that that fills a very narrow uh, a focus, whereas the Cleveland Clinic is known for all types of things. So I think part of it is the fact that they are focused so exclusively on on orthopedics and and rheumatology, and they don't have that same national uh, uh, name recognition because they're not a larger, broader medical institution. 
when you went into orthopedics, did you um, already know your kind of life plan? Did you decide I was only going to focus on a sports oriented approach to musculoskeletal medicine, or did you think you would be a general orthopod and treat pediatric conditions and adult conditions? Well, my decision on sports medicine came late in my orthopedic training career, so to speak. When I first went to medical school, my plan was to be a pediatrician. And then I was inspired by a physician at Hopkins. I did my medical training at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, a gentleman named J. Alex Haller, who was a general pediatric surgeon. So then I gravitated towards pediatric surgery. I then did a rotation in pediatric orthopedics during my medical school training, and that made me interested in pediatric orthopedics. So entering my residency, my plan was to do pediatric orthopedics. I then got exposed to sports medicine during my training, and it was during my residency training that I shifted my focus from pediatric orthopedics to sports medicine, but never really gave up the interest and the love for the pediatric patient, which is what prompted me then to pursue a fellowship in pediatric uh, and adolescent sports medicine, basically. So when somebody calls in and their child has an injury, what's the youngest age of your your practice population? Uh, I've done an ACL reconstruction on a seven-year-old. Seven. <laughs> wow. So what, what was the injury? Trampoline injury. A young kid got bounced on the trampoline. Uh, he tore his ACL and bucket-handled his medial meniscus as a seven-year-old. So wow. uh, that's probably the youngest surgical patient with a sports injury that I've, uh, that I've taken care of in my time here. Follow-up to that seven-year-old? Uh, That seven-year-old was last seen when he was 16. He was a high school basketball player who had a solid knee and was very happy with the life that he was pursuing at that point. So besides taking care of patients in the St. Louis Metroplex, one of your um, duties is you are currently the head team physician for the St. Louis Cardinals. Yes. So, and then you previously, before they went to L.A., (laughs) at some point you were the uh, Rams team physician as well, right? Yes. When I came to St. Louis in 1998, I was fortunate enough to join the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Washington University and direct the sports medicine fellowship there. Uh, and at that time, the physicians at WashU took care of the Rams and took care of the Cardinals, and I was able to uh, participate as part of the care teams for both of those professional organizations. So my time with the Rams was quite exciting. It was during the Kurt Warner and Marshall Falk years and the years when the Rams were really quite good. And we went to uh, a couple of Super Bowls and won one. And I've been in the role of a head team orthopedic surgeon for the Cardinals uh, for most of the 22 or 23 years since I came to uh, St. Louis. So which do you like better? You can Well, as much as you can answer this, baseball or football? Well, they're two very different um, obviously very different sports, but from a medical perspective, they're two very different things. If you think about the NFL, you've got 300-pound guys crashing into each other at speeds that you and I can't even think about generating. So a lot of the injuries in football are more traumatic and acute, whereas in baseball, you've got a lot of shoulder, a lot of elbow, a lot of repetitive use. And really, the way my practice is developed, I enjoy shoulder and elbow surgery in particular. So for me and, and my practice, I don't want to say I've enjoyed the Cardinals more, but it really fits more with the practice focus that that I have. But they're both very, very different, and both were very enjoyable in their own ways. But really, the Cardinals is the thing that 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 suits my practice best, and that I think my skill set suits the athlete best for. So you're an arm guy. My practice is, yeah, I'd say I'm an arm guy. But my practice is about 50% shoulder, about 25% elbow, and about 25% knee. Most of the knee surgery that I do is more reconstructive, ACL reconstructions, meniscus surgery. I don't do any type of knee replacements. I don't do a lot of arthritic conditions. So the knee portion of my practice is really sports medicine oriented as opposed to a degenerative type of uh, orientation. Uh, So that's a pretty fair breakdown. But if you have to categorize me, I'm an arm guy. So I guess that would be the, the next question I'd ask you is, what's your favorite thing what what's your favorite procedure or thing to take care of? Is it shoulders specifically? Is it elbows? Is it ACLs? Is well, there one? Well, I think that you know, the favorite thing for me in general, no matter what the problem is, is to be able to take care of an athlete 
and see that athlete through the rehabilitation process to get back on the field, no matter what their sport is. The thing that gives me the greatest satisfaction probably if I had to pick one thing is to do a Tommy John reconstruction, to do an elbow reconstruction on an elite pitcher like Adam Wainwright or like Chris Carpenter and to see a guy like Carpenter come back after that and win the Cy Young Award or to see Adam Wainwright win a, uh, um, a Comeback Player of the Year Award and to be able to continue their career and to be able to do that in the limelight of what is you know, a, a very bright limelight here for the Cardinals players. That is tremendously uh, rewarding uh, to be able to see them go out and perform. You know, we take care of high school athletes all the time, and those kids go back to playing ball, but I'm not at their games. I'm not seeing them play. I don't have that exact same direct real-time feedback as I do when I get to see a guy like Adam Wainwright go out and pitch after I've operated on him. So for me, that's probably the most gratifying and my favorite operation to do on those kind of guys is a Tommy John uh, elbow reconstruction in part because we're good at it now and it's predictable and these guys come back and they come back as good if not better than they were and and there's a lot to be said for that so two questions about Tommy John well one question about Tommy John where is Tommy John so that's a reconstruction of the elbow um typically injured elbows that are typically injured in throwing athletes. But is that a surgery that everybody needs? Do, do high school pitchers need a Tommy John reconstruction? Or is that something that should be reserved for persons that make a living throwing a ball? Or So it's a, it's, a, it's a good question, and it's one we struggle with when we see our high school athletes and we see our college athletes. I've done over 700 Tommy John operations in my career, and the vast majority are baseball players. So the number one reason to perform that operation is to allow an athlete to get back to playing baseball or throwing at a high level. If that is something that the athlete wants to continue to do, be it return to high school play, try and go on and play in college, or hopefully get drafted, then that's really the, the reason and the indication to do the surgery. It's an operation to get them back to throwing at a high level. It is not an operation that the vast, vast majority of people need for other sports or for activities of daily living. So it's really a a goal-oriented procedure with the goal being getting that athlete back to a high level of throwing. If they have pain and they can't throw at a high level because of that ligament injury, then it's an operation that should be done. Well, you you get into the whole um, parent-athlete aspiration and the parent insisting on a Tommy John and a kid that is really no potential to go that far. And those dilemmas and those discussions are hard. Right. And one of the first questions I ask the younger thrower, for example, the high school kid or, or even the college kid. So if I see a high school junior, let's say right now, and, or high school senior, my one of my first questions is, what's your plan after high school? Not are you going to college? What's your plan with baseball? And if the kid says, I'm going to MIT, I'm going to be an engineer and I play the tuba, I just want to play my senior year of high school, that's a kid who we probably don't need to put through an operation and 12 months worth of rehab. But if the kid says, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being recruited and I want to play at the college level, that drives the decision in a different direction as well. You know, one of the great misconceptions that we have to deal with all the time with parents, as Dr. Trish mentioned, is parents coming in saying, my kid's going to need a Tommy John operation anyway. Let's just get it over with and do it. Or, you know, my understanding is kids come back throwing harder after a Tommy John operation. Why don't we just go ahead and do it? And that's not what this operation is about. Yeah, I, th I think those of us that don't specialize in Tommy John's but are in the sports medicine world sometimes see people that it's been offered to them as if it's the only option. You know, like people just talk to them like, well, this is what you do, regardless of what your goals are, regardless of what you're trying to do. It's just doing surgery almost for surgery's sake. Hey, something's broken. Let's go fix it. But or Dr. Internet has helped them come to that conclusion that, as to the need for. I mean, the Internet's a powerful tool for good and for not so good. Right. There's a lot of information they can gather and a lot of things they can learn, but it's sometimes out of context. And just because an athlete has an injured ulnar collateral ligament doesn't even mean that he or she needs surgery. There are also non-operative approaches, and those are the things that we continue to research and continue to, to investigate to figure out who really does need the surgery and how do we make that decision early on and not waste that kid's time with a course of rest and rehabilitation, and who has a high likelihood of recovering without surgery, and we're still getting better and better at that. 
Where do you think your practice, or not your practice in particular, but um, orthopedic surgeons in the future and the way they operate will be affected by artificial intelligence and the, the algorithms put together for surgical outcomes? Good Lord. Well, I, I think that, you know, the, the but, advantage of... Sorry, Jeff, some <laughs> of us have to be smart here. The advantage of artificial intelligence is that it can aggregate and it can assess um, large, large amounts of data, right? I'm, I'm a busy surgeon. Uh, you know, I, I do between 50 and 70 Tommy John operations a year. Over a 20-year career, that's maybe 1,400 or 1,000 Tommy Johns. You can draw conclusions from that, but if you can aggregate 50 surgeons that do that kind of volume and you can use AI to, to assess that, we can get much more refined uh, analysis of the data and, and, and draw much more um, reliable conclusions with those larger um, uh, data sets. So I think the ability of AI to really process and analyze large areas of data gives us the opportunity to aggregate the experiences of many, many surgeons into a large data pool and hopefully draw more valid conclusions with regard to indications with regard to treatment options, with regard to rehabilitation options, ultimately leading to the best outcome. So that brings me to you know, the area I'm interested in, and that's the rehabilitation portion of recovery. How involved are you with your patients in that recovery process versus just doing the surgery and passing them along? Well, one of my standard lines to, to my, particularly my high school and college athletes is that when I roll you out of that operating room, 95% of my job is done, but the most important 5% remains. And that's for me and you and your therapist to be um, intimately involved with your recovery and rehabilitation. I could do the best Tommy John operation that's ever been done. And if the rehab isn't done properly, it doesn't give the athlete that best outcome. So my rehab protocols are detailed. My expectation is that there's going to be communication with and interaction with the therapist because it's really a team approach to getting that athlete back. Many of the surgeries that I do require rehabilitation and require a prolonged period of rehabilitation. And if you don't do that well, you're not going to have the best outcome. So I'm very involved with that, both from a direction standpoint, but also from a communication standpoint. And I see that as the failure for a lot of surgeries is that the once the surgery is done, that communication maybe with the surgeon or the interpretation of the patient that this is it. Um, athletes are different species. I love taking care of athletes. They recover better in general. Um, but it's you definitely have to give them reins on when to go and when to slow down and being and each each person's a little bit different and, and you just hit the nail on the head that's exactly what i was going to say each athlete is a little bit different and his or her path to recovery is not always the same straight line or the same jagged line that another athlete takes so having careful uh, and close involvement in that rehabilitation process allows you to assess the, the, the fits and the starts, the, the, the places where the athlete may be a little bit behind or where they may be getting a little bit ahead of themselves so that you can, as you said, set up some guidelines and, and, and make sure that they are progressing the way they, they should because it's not always a smooth path and every, every athlete doesn't take the same path to return to play. And being in the spotlight with some professional athletes, there are s certain standards in recovery for whatever condition. Do you... I know the answer to this, but I want to hear you say this. Do you, do you get influenced by all of the attention on the recovery pattern of a specific high-level athlete? Because it's coming from media, it's coming from you know, uh, other physicians, it's coming from team, the team, the management, their agents. So one of the things that you, I'm sure you recognize, and, and maybe the public in general doesn't recognize, but the information that the media has and the information that other physicians have is limited in the sense that they're not in the training room with me, with the athlete, with the team's physical therapist, with the team's trainer, and really intimately informed as to exactly what's going on. So that can be a 
tremendous point of frustration for me because what's out there and what the reality is are sometimes two uh, different things. So I try very hard not to, A, pay attention to any of that sort of media buzz, good or bad, and more importantly, not be influenced by that because I know what's really going on with the athlete. I'm the one that has my hands on the athlete. I know what the therapist is seeing and what the trainer is doing. So that that sort of insulates me a little bit and 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 hardens me a little bit to what may or may not be in the press or in the media or at a cocktail party. So you're there all the time. You are in the training room. And that may be a misconception for people that this is, you know, you fly in to do a surgery and you fly out, but you are with and you know these athletes. Well, my part of my obligation to the team is to provide coverage uh, for the games um, when the Cardinals are here playing in St. Louis. So uh, I am in the training room. I'm at the stadium for a majority of the of the games when the team is playing at home. And then when the team is on the road, I'm in daily communication with the head athletic trainer uh, to understand what's going on on the road and what's going on with the athletes. So it's a it's a daily part of my existence even in the in the offseason i had a conversation with adam olson the head athletic trainer from the cardinals today so that's the only way that i know how to do it that's the way i was trained and if you don't have your finger on the pulse with these guys they're either going to wander somewhere else which makes it more complicated to care for them or the outcomes are going to be suboptimal which nobody wants first and foremost the athlete and me and the city absolutely the city (laughs) let's be selfish here so, so, go ahead, Jeff. Well, I just was um, piggybacking on that. I was just curious, are there other differences to taking care of professional athletes um, than high school athletes? Other than some of the, the limelight and everything else, is there anything specific to professional athletes where you're like, hey, this is a whole different game because of the way we have to manage them? Or, or is it just the same thing but lots more people involved? Well, it, it's it's generally similar. Uh, the advantage of taking care of professional athletes is that they have every resource available to them. And things like uh, 20 visits of physical therapy, because that's all their insurance program plan allows, doesn't come into play. So you have the advantage of having tremendous resources available to the athlete without restriction on their utilization. But in many ways, it's similar. And people always ask me, well, do you get nervous operating on Chris Carpenter or Adam Wainwright? Once that arm is prepped and draped and all you're looking at is the elbow, it's an elbow. And it's an elbow that needs to be taken care of the same way, whether it's Jeff Todd's or Dr. Trish's or Adam Wainwright's or Adam Pujol, or uh, uh, Albert Pujols's. You, you got to do, do things technically the right way. In a lot of ways, there are a lot more people... Um, involved with the major league or the professional athlete. You know, everybody has their view of the solar system. My view of the solar system is that I sit in the middle and everybody swirls around me, but the athlete's view is he sits in the middle and the planets that swirl around him or the organization, the coaching staff, the agents. You look at the high school player. Who are the planets or moons that circulate around him? His parents, The agent really plays the role of the parent for the professional athlete. He's got coaches that he wants to be responsible to. He may have personal trainers. So while the, while the, the, the entourage may be slightly different, there's still outside influences and outside interests that have to be addressed regardless of who it is. It's just at a whole nother level with the professional athlete. How has COVID affected professional sports? Well, from your perspective, from my perspective, it's been an extremely uh, challenging year. Obviously, spring training was shut down for quite some time. We had to reboot with protocols in place that were uh, continually evolving. And unfortunately, the Cardinals, along with the Miami Marlins, were two of the teams that were significantly impacted by COVID outbreaks. We had difficult protocols to work through in terms of even trying to be able to continue to provide the coverage of games and the care of the athletes. So it created challenges that none of us ever had envisioned before, and and we had to be adaptive and in some ways reactive, but at the same time we had to be proactive. I think what it taught me is that um, it's even more important to 
evaluate, to understand and embrace each athlete as an individual because it became so clear in this situation how each athlete's individual needs were unique, whether it was uh, a concern or a fear about COVID, whether it was their response to being diagnosed with COVID, and even their response to how uh, surgery during this epidemic may or may not be different. So it was a very challenging but very enlightening time, and I hope it's something that we don't have to deal with in the 2021 season. And I'm sure those protocols early on have obviously evolved and improved and hopefully behaviors. Well, I think that, you know, the, the... what happens with the St. Louis Cardinals is in some way a microcosm with what's happening um, for society as a whole. We're learning more and more about COVID and we're learning more and more about what um, what protocols do and don't work. And, and hopefully we can continue to, 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 to mitigate and eventually get, get past this. But uh, it, again, it's, it, it was as much a challenge inside the training room as it has been you know, in St. Louis County or in the United States of America. It's just a microcosm. So at this time, spring season is on, as far as you know. My understanding as of right now is that um, they are, are hoping for and planning for a normal 2021 baseball season, but with a whole lot of contingencies, depending on how the pandemic goes. I want to switch gears and I want to pick your brain about youth athletes. And I want to know your thoughts on sports specialization. It's kind of a big buzzword in the sports medicine world we see it yeah obviously you know my family's got kids playing sports all the time you know what are your thoughts about these kids that are playing one sport all the time early club involvement you know i think that it's it's one of the great conundrums uh as far as the young athlete goes the the concept of specialization is one that, uh, from a positive perspective, allows kids to immerse themselves in a particular discipline and, and potentially develop uh, skill sets uh, uh, sooner or, or, or better than athletes who participate uh, less frequently or with less commitment. But the flip side of that is, uh, it, for example, a baseball player. If we have a young kid who's playing baseball 10 months a year in Missouri, which is not unreasonable, that kid's body is being exposed to repetitive stresses that are the same over and over and over again, as opposed to the kid who plays baseball and then football and then basketball. From a skill development set, that kid may develop a whole different set of skills with each of those sports than the athlete who concentrates on one. But from an injury prevention and an injury risk perspective, that kid's not throwing nine months of the year. So his shoulder, his elbow are getting a rest from stresses that they're exposed to only in baseball as opposed to football and to, or in basketball, for example. So I think that it's a double-edged sword. From the orthopedic surgeon's perspective, I think that one needs to be very careful with that because the risk of overuse uh, is, is real and the risk of increasing Injury risk and particular injury patterns is also real. We see that in our practice. Do we have any better information on how much of a break a an athlete needs from their sports-specific training at this point? So typically in baseball, the recommendation is currently that they take at least three months off from the baseball activity, from throwing activity. There's been a fair amount of research in Dr. Jimmy Andrews, who's one of the most famous orthopedic sports medicine doctors in the country. His group has done a lot of research on, on that. And they've given us good guidelines, both with regard to the level of in-season participation, for example, pitch counts and things like that, but also cumulative effect of, uh, of year-round play. So the recommendations that I make with my athletes are generally three months of, of rest from those high-level throwing activities. Would you extrapolate those sort of recommendations to other sports? Are, and, and that's kind of tough because running's a totally different beast and, and you do that in many sports, but say soccer or basketball or... I, I think as a generalization, probably. I'm, I'm not sure that that three-month time frame would, would necessarily fit well with uh, each and every, but think about the young basketball player. 
as a kid who's still growing and developing, uh, playing basketball five or six days a week, year round, the stress is on the knee, the stress is on the growth plates, the stress is on developing tendons and ligaments are cumulative. And if the body doesn't have a, a chance to recover and, and remodel those tissues, they may be increasing the risk for injury. So I think conceptually, it, it still applies. I'm just not sure if I would commit to the same three-month time frame as I would, for example, a high-level thrower. What do you see as the future of orthopedics? So we're we're learning all the time. He's retiring to a beach. <laughs> that's, that's, his, that's his future that's his of orthopedics. I, I mean, we're learning all the time about innovate. There's amazing innovations going on in techniques. There's nanotechnology. But what do you think... Are we headed to a place where biologics is the answer? Or are we headed to a place where more smaller surgeries, but better tools to do bigger surgeries through smaller holes? I mean, where do you think we're headed? I see three critical sort of components to the future of, of orthopedics and sports medicine in particular. One is the continued evolution of a multidisciplinary approach. And the greater sort of integration and interaction of not just the orthopedic surgeon, but multiple uh, disciplines, physical therapy, non-operative sports medicine specialists, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, because it really is a team effort to, to, to care for and to optimize an athlete's recovery. So we're understanding more and more about that, even the psychological component of it. So I think a greater multidisciplinary team approach to the care of the athlete is part of our future. We can make the incisions as small as we want. We can make them as big as we want, but we still have biology that we have to deal with. And whether we repair a ligament through a three inch incision or a three centimeter incision, we still have the biology of that healing that has to take place. So the other two forefronts that I think are going to be critical are modulating that biology and improving the healing potential of the body. Be that with what you mentioned, biologics like stem cells and PRP, which I think we continue to learn a lot about, both from a healing perspective and a regenerative perspective. I think those will have a continued role and we just need to refine those and better understand those. And then the real forefront is gonna be gene therapy and where we end up with uh, being able to uh, uh, signal um, or, or, um, or, or direct the human body from a genetic perspective, for example, to regenerate cartilage or to uh, improve uh, overall joint uh, health. So I think those are the three areas that I believe over the next decade are gonna pay significant dividends and advance the field of sports medicine, more so than developing new anchors or developing uh, you know, smaller surgical techniques, uh, things like that. I think it's really understanding the athlete as a whole not just the knee or not just the elbow or the shoulder and understanding how to optimize the biology of healing and recovery. And predicting that evolution of healing and recovery per patient. You understand that going into it, how fast a patient may recover based on whatever treatment you um, determine they need, which is exciting in those predictive models with gene therapy too. I'm, I've been interested in ACL reconstructions for a while because as my background as an athletic trainer, I've always felt like something was a little off. You know, um, Adrian Peterson, I go back to Adrian Peterson just because I was in, at Oklahoma when Adrian was there, and tears his ACL, and the world goes crazy and goes, it's unbelievable that he's recovered and, and able to play football in 12, 12 months later. You know, he comes back in 12 months. The world goes crazy and go, this is unbelievable. And then I go to the private orthopedic practice and we see Susie, the soccer star from Fulton, Fulton, Missouri, and we rehab her. And six months later, she's released and she's been able to go back. And, and we're at six months. Most of the time people go, oh, no problem. Go ahead. And then, but we don't go crazy over Susie getting back in six months, but we go crazy about Adrian being able to go to the NFL. But then I, and, and you touched on this once already, but then I look at the two people, Adrian Peterson sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber at night, therapy, you know, three, four times a day with the best therapist. Susie is 
going to the local rehab center for 20 visits of physical therapy. Do you think that we're, you know, we need to adjust kind of our, and this probably goes for other things in ACLs, but adjusting our reality a little bit about what we, where we want these, how fast we want these people to go back or do we need to look at that? Well, I think, I think an ACL is a great example because there's been a clear, uh, transition or transformation in terms of how we handle those. So early in my career, those were still operations in which sometimes patients were casted after surgery. They were sometimes kept in the hospital for a day or two. And it was a very slow, deliberate recovery process. And then a gentleman named Don Shelbourne from Indianapolis um, promoted this concept of accelerated rehab. And that really got pushed to the point of trying to get athletes back in as short a time as possible. And when somebody like Adrian Peterson shows up and is back in four months or, you know, it, that doesn't help the, 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 the high school athlete or the recreational athlete. And what we found and what we've learned is that there are factors still that confound that recovery. There's a psychological factor, fear of injury. And the pendulum has now swung back from this idea of accelerated rehab to the fact that it may take a little bit longer for the athlete to be fully ready to return to his or her sport. So the knee may be stable, the ACL graft may be incorporated, but they're not ready to return to play yet. Things like their ability to jump and land and not abnormally load the knee. We've learned how to better assess as part of the rehab process. We've learned how to better assess their psychological readiness to return. So ACL is a perfect example where we swung, I think, a little bit too far to this idea of accelerated rehab and early return to play. And we lost a little bit of the perspective of the athlete as a whole. And the fact that there may be other issues besides just the integrity of that ACL reconstruction that dictate a safe return to play. It was a but it was a shopping point for a while. Like parents would call you and say, what's your ACL recovery time? Or when can my kid go back to sports? Oh, well, you said six months. And then this doctor over here says four. So We're gonna I might go, go, right. I'll go to this one because they're, they're, this is four months. They must do it better. Or they must do it different. And it, I don't know if enough docs spend enough time explaining the difference. Like, hey, here's why I, I have a six-month recovery. Because of things you mentioned. I'm looking at your... Of the overall so for me you know that's a pretty easy answer now and that my answer is your daughter Susie the soccer star will go back to soccer when Susie's ready to go back to soccer and there are ways that we measure that and Susie's going to have to prove when Susie's ready if it's at six months that's great but if it's not I'm not going to send your daughter back to a situation where she has a high risk of re-injury. So Susie's going to tell us when Susie's ready to go. We're not, we're not baking brownies here. It's not preheat the oven to 350 and in 22 minutes it's done. That's not the way this works anymore. We understand the process a whole lot better. But you're right. It did become a shopping point. But I think most orthopedic surgeons, and I have great faith in my, in my colleagues, if they're looking critically at what they do, a number of us were seeing that, that that progressively earlier return to play was not necessarily in the best interest of the athlete, and there may have been increased cases of re-injury or other problems. And as a, as a, as a specialty, we've recognized that, and we've started to swing back a little bit to a bit more conservative approach. But that approach has really been taken to protect the athlete and to optimize the outcome and minimize the risk of re-injury. Because as you know, Jeff, from your experience, a second ACL injury and a second ACL surgery doesn't bode well for the long-term athletic uh, career of that, of that patient. So should parents come in and ask your outcomes and your success with outcomes and believe you? And if and I'm you being the surgeon, not you in particular. I think that that they should ask, and that they should believe. But uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan, right? Trust and verify. So what I have the advantage of is I have high-profile patients who the world sees, and the world sees those outcomes with people like. Albert Pujols and Chris Carpenter and, and, and Marshall Falk and, and Kurt Warner, all patients of mine who I operated on. So there is some extrinsic 
um, validation of, of my, my outcomes. But for doctors who don't have that same sort of high profile patient out there, it, 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 it doesn't hurt to talk to other patients that that physician may have taken care of. So oftentimes for a young athlete, I'll say, well, you know, where do you go to school? Well, I go to Eureka. Well, you know, I've got this kid, you know, Joe Driscoll, who had his reconstruction done two years ago. Maybe you should talk to Joe and, and give them an opportunity to, to get some outside um, input if, if that's what they need. But I believe that most of my colleagues, again, I have high regard for. I think we try and be as honest as we can with our outcomes and with our results. And, and that's the obligation we have to the patient. So, yes, they can believe what I tell them. Good. Second opinions, team approach. Awesome answers. I trust physicians who give that kind of um, verification to what they're doing for for the patients. So and again, I learned that lesson with with the Cardinals. I mean, I, I still to this day, twenty plus years into it, and having operated on you know, dozens and dozens of high profile professional players, every time I say to one of the St. Louis Cardinals, "I believe you need an operation," almost the next words out of my mouth are. Let's, let's talk about a second opinion to make sure you're comfortable with it. Because if a physician, if an orthopedic surgeon is comfortable with his or her diagnosis and recommendation of treatment for the patient, I should have no worries about that patient going out and seeing Dr. Andrews or seeing uh, Dr. Alchek in New York or seeing anybody in the St. Louis area. Um, because I, I believe I've done right by that patient. I've made the right diagnosis. I've made the right treatment recommendations. And a good orthopedic surgeon is going to likely um, uh, endorse that. And so for me, it, I find that to be a, a helpful thing to, A, reassure the patient, and, and B, make sure that they're comfortable. We, we are given a great gift in the sense that when I go to the operating room, I have a patient who's consenting to me cutting into their body and taking complete control of their well-being when they're in the operating room. I want them to be as comfortable and confident in that as possible because I am, I am overseeing their well-being during that time. And whatever it takes to make them comfortable just helps me in the long run. So I'll share an anecdotal story about good old Dr. Paletta here and, and why I hold him in very, very high regard. So I've been very fortunate in my career to be around a lot of good orthopedic surgeons, work for a lot of good ones. Been, you know, and so I... You never worked for me, <laughs> despite the fact I've tried a couple of times. <laughs> Day's not over yet, Doc. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, you can I, have him. <laughs> wait a minute. Easy. easy. I was expecting a bidding war, oh, not, not giving sorry. me away. So when my, my nine-year-old or 10-year-old uh, developed a cartilage defect in her knee, and we had we had followed her very conservatively and kind of followed the textbook pattern of doing things. And then shut her down, rested her, and then we go in for, we're in for maybe a couple of years into this. And then finally, a couple of years into it, her knee starts hurting again. And that's when I called Dr. Paletta and I said, hey, we've done all these things. I think she needs a surgery. And, and, and I felt, felt like by textbook standards, she had actually followed the, the non-operative treatment pretty good. And I said, I really think that we're just at this point where I can't shut her down anymore. She needs a surgery. And he said to me, he looked at everything. He goes, I want to see your daughter. Bring her in. My daughter sees it. And he said, hey, you know, you're probably not wrong. We could do that operation. I just don't know if it's the right thing right now. And he said, I just really think you need to give it a little bit more time. She's really young. And, and that's, of course, what ultimately I wanted, but I, I had been, we're three years into managing a problem in a young kid who wanted to be active. And he just said, I'm just telling you, pump the brakes, give it, give it a little bit more time. And she's fine. She's perfectly back. She plays select, she does all the wrong things, <laughs> select basketball, select soccer. At one time she was also playing select softball. Um, and There's so, a lot of value in a surgeon who can tell you no surgery. But, I mean, Dr. Trish knows this because she does invasive procedures. The most important decision we make is whether or not to do an operation. Because once you've done an operation, you, you can't go backwards. So the decision of whether to operate or not to operate, for me, is as important as any decision 
that I make with regard to the patient. For you, whether to, you know, to do some type of injection procedure or other type of invasive procedure, once that's done, there's no going back. So the decision to operate for me is one of the most important decisions I can make. I've got decisions of then what operation do I do? What do I do with the recovery? But that most important decision is, is surgery the best and the right option for this patient? And oftentimes the answer is no. Is it an option? Yes, sure. But is it the best option? Sometimes it's no. And, and, and I think you do the patient the best service when you consider the importance of that decision of whether to operate or not operate. I mean, when I refer patients to Dr. Paletta in our clinic, I tell them that story a lot. I say, hey, listen, the best service he ever did on me was not operating on my kid not instead of operating on her. He, he could have operated on her, but the reason I hold him in such high regard is because he didn't. And then he operated on my wife and fixed her too. So thank God because she wasn't able to run and my life's miserable if she's not running. So I actually owe him a lot. A lot. <laughs> You know, the other thing that's interesting, and, and Dr. Trish knows this, is a, patients come in and a lot of times at the orthopedist or uh, for, uh, you know, your area of specialty, the chief complaint is pain. And this is going to sound a little bit cold, and I don't mean for it to sound that way, but your pain is your pain until I operate on you or until you stick a needle in them, and then it's our pain. That's exactly right. And if I can't, if I can't reliably do something to help your pain, then I'm going to make your pain, your pain and my pain. And we're going to have two of us who, who are going to be unhappy and, and disappointed in it. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's important to really understand and to gauge what type of benefit you can provide a patient by doing something invasive or active to them, as opposed to doing something passive, such as rest, rehabilitation, more time. Are we ready? Dr. Trish, it's time for the best part of the day. The best. Doctor, I, I love this part because Dr. Paletta has no idea what we're about to do. Tequila shots? Is that what we're going to do? We started that way. <laughs> you know what? That's a fantastic lead-in because this section, Dr. Paletta, is called Getting Hammered. Five questions. Rapid answer. Not supposed to be deep, super thought-provoking questions, just more top-of-brain comments. Ready? Ready. All right. Question number one. If you could be any animal, what would it be? Tiger. Damn. Hmm. So, okay, we've interviewed two surgeons. We've had two surgeons in this in, in our podcast so far, both of them. They have an answer immediately. Well, tiger's a lot better than buffalo. No. Sorry, Dr. Hagen. Sorry, Dr. Hagen. <laughs> I liked his answer at the time, though. I did, too, but it, may, it, uh, it caused me to pause after I laughed. <laughs> it came out way too fast. But Dr. Paletta didn't waste a second. He knew tiger. Uh, why tiger? They're, they're regal. They're stately. They're stealth. They're vicious when they need to be. Um, and as opposed to the lion, quite honestly, the king of the jungle, he's a little bit lazy. He lets the lady, he lets the lady lion do most of the work. Whereas I think the tiger is a bit more, um, um, egalitarian when it comes to that. Wow. Might be the best answer ever. I mean, seriously. <laughs> All right. We, we should stop. <laughs> question number, we're retiring that question after that. <laughs> Never gets should. asked again. Never. Question number two. If you could choose any two famous people to have dinner with, who and why? Jesus Christ and Adolf Hitler. Together or separate? No, you got to have uh, it's together. If it it would be if it has to be together, it would be together. I think those are two sides of the two sides of the spectrum. Wow. That's prof do you imagine that dinner conversation? Yeah, I wouldn't talk at all. I'd just be listening. <laughs> I would love to hear one look at the other. Do you serve tequila? <laughs> Is there, are the tequila shots before that conversation? <laughs> so question number three, your house is on fire. Besides family and pets, what one thing are you going in to get? Uh, there's a photograph of me and my two grandfathers taken on the day 
I believe the day of my college graduation or maybe the baccalaureate ceremony. It's my most um, precious photograph. I'd go in and get that. I love that because I have a photo of my grandfather that I. That would be your, your item. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, they were, he was a big deal in my life, so I like that. Number four, if you were to start a new hobby, what would it be? Or if you're thinking about starting a new hobby. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to play guitar, but I'm so musically inept that I don't ever think that's going to happen. But if I was going to start a new hobby, it would be learn how to play guitar. Dr. Trish plays the guitar. Dr. Trish tries to play the guitar. Well, don't sign me up for lessons. <laughs> it would be a struggle. <laughs> That's couch. a surgeon thing. I know a lot of orthopedic surgeons that play guitar. That seems, I, I don't, I'm wondering yeah. why. I think deep down, most of us want to be rock stars. I think you're right. It does sound like a pretty good lifestyle. I mean, if you're choosing. Question number five. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? The best piece of advice I've ever been given, I would say, is from my grandfather. Uh, I might get it wrong, but he and my grandmother had a wonderful uh, marriage and, and, and raised a wonderful extended family. I just had my first uh, grandchild a month ago, so it would have been their great-great-grandchildren. Uh, but they, my grandfather talked about the three C's when it came to a uh, uh, relationship. Communication, caring, and compromise. You got to care for people. You got to communicate with people. And you can't always have it your way. So sometimes you got to compromise. And that, I think, is something that not only uh, relates to a marriage or to an interpersonal relationship, but it's something that I can uh, take to the office as well. I got to care about my patients. I got to communicate with them. And sometimes I got to compromise with them. And I think that's something that has helped me both personally and professionally uh, along my way. Another great answer. I mean, honestly, we might have to retire the getting hammered <laughs> section after Dr. Paletta. I mean, you said a lot of great things about Dr. Paletta. I don't know if I, I would have believed you, but I'm a believer. I told you. Well, Dr. Paletta, we'd like to thank you for joining us. Uh, we appreciate you coming and joining us with Source Sessions. You are reachable at the Orthopedic Center of St. Louis. And uh, that website is uh, toc-stl.com. That is correct. And we will put your phone number and the address to the office in the show notes. People can reach out to you if you're trying to make an appointment. You specialize, again, I'll recap, you specialize in upper and lower extremity sports medicine injuries and surgery, if needed. Um, and pediatric and adult patients. That's correct. Don't forget the kids. Don't Until forget next the kids. time, thank you, everybody. Dr. Trish. Jeff Todd. We'll see you next time on Soar Sessions.